the prettiest saddle in the world is totally useless if it's built on a bad tree. It's the foundation of your saddle, and if it's not good, no matter how pretty it is or how much silver you put on it, it's a piece of junk. You're listening to Hide and Horn, a series exploring the functional artistry of custom saddle making through the words and experiences of those that build them. I'm your host, Ian Halligan. Like a Spaniard in the pit, I'm here to play for blood boys and I'll... Based on the outskirts of Buffalo, Wyoming, George Fraker has been building custom saddles and trees for almost 50 years. Though initially learning to build saddles in Spokane and living for a time in northern Idaho, Buffalo holds a special place in the Fraker family, stretching back almost a century and a half before statehood. It would be my great-great-uncle, Harmon Fraker, had come west from Wisconsin as a trapper and a buffalo hunter. And uh, in the spring of 1877, he, he settled west to KC at the foot of the mountains took up a homestead, and then my great-grandfather, which is an older brother and another brother, came out about 15 years later, and they they all basically sold out by 1910, went back to Wisconsin. But my granddad, his formative years was out here, so he didn't stay in Wisconsin very long. He, he turned around and come back to Wyoming, thank God, so I wasn't born back there. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be a cheesehead. <laughs> <laughs> It would be in Spokane, however, that George would first start in saddle making. Initially learning on his own, a visit to the tack shop in Washington would lead to an apprenticeship with Jesse Smith, as well as a career by graduation. Basically, I, I tore an old saddle apart that had belonged to the family and started rebuilding it on the, the, on the old tree. But I was needing materials, so I went into Spokane to buy these materials, and that's how I wound up knowing Jesse. Yeah, I was very fortunate just to stumble onto him by accident. Saw some of his work. He wasn't there because it was on a weekend. The guy that owned the shop offered to let me come back, and he he told me that Jesse would help me any any way he could because he wasn't he wasn't secretive about his knowledge. And uh, I spent my Christmas vacation with Jesse in there, learning what I could from him and asking him questions and stuff. And he kind of guided me through long, sort of long distance, through that first saddle build. And then the day that I graduated was my first full day in the shop as an employee. Starting in the winter of 1969, by spring the following year, George's first saddle was built. Still being used by his brother almost 50 years later, parts of the same saddle stretch back even farther in time. The original tree, I don't know how old it was. I've got a picture of my dad is at about 16 years old holding a horse and a rifle and the, the saddle that's on the horse is that same saddle, and it was a used old saddle then. And that would have been in the 30s because Dad was born in 29. Well, it would have been early 40s, I guess, when that picture was taken. As for its appearance? Well, it was an old, real high-backed. It was the old-style trees, high back and high front, and the bars were narrower for the type of horses it was being ridden in. had a 14-inch seat. And my dad was so thin at 16 that he had two gunny sacks rolled up and tied together behind the swells for buckroll so that the saddle would fit him. And then only as a 14-inch seat. Also adding some stamping and carving. I think I down on the fenders I carved a Brahma bull with a wreath of flowers around him. And then I did a, did a rope border on it, kind of a rope stamp border. Other than that, it was fairly plain. Looking back on it now, George reflects. Oh, yeah, I was proud as heck of it till I made my second one, and then I was ashamed of it. (laughs) 
The years spent at the tack shop would see all manner of saddle repair, saddle building, and a variety of other projects that all contributed to an overall education in leatherwork. The shop's owner, Jack Lewis, was also an old cowboy rich in personality. Three times in the afternoon, he'd have to go to the bank. He didn't have any money, but he had to go to the bank, and the bank was either the flame or the red fox, and he'd come back and he'd smell alcohol in his breath. <laughs> but he was as good-hearted as you could come by. Stocking factory-made as well as custom saddles, halters, a form of headgear used to lead or tether horses or livestock, also comprised a significant portion of business. Every year they have a thoroughbred sale every the spring of every year. Every thoroughbred, whether it's a yearling or a, or a full-sized horse, was sold with a brand new leather halter on it. So they'd put these halters out on bids. We wound up getting the bids for several years in a row. So I made a lot of racetrack halters as well as doing the repair work, and which is good experience. I mean, anytime you're working with leather, regardless of what you're, what you're making out of it, your hands are on it, you learn from it. Over the next three years, George worked at the tack shop while apprenticing under Jesse Smith. But by 1973, homesickness and a desire to work as his own boss signaled a return to Wyoming. Johnson County's always been home to me, even the 14 years or whatever it was that I lived in North Idaho. It wasn't where I wanted to live. It was fortunate for me because I've known people around this area, and a lot of them have known me all my life. And that, you know, I'd made enough saddles around that the word was out. And, uh, well, and my grandparents was still alive and here in Buffalo at the time and had that family. And then I had cousins down south. So, you know, I wasn't totally a newcomer, I guess you'd say. With extensive roots in Buffalo, the establishment of a clientele came naturally. Though not working in custom saddle making full time, George still found time and space to build saddles. It was a little scary for a while, and I, di- I did quite a little day work, driving truck a little bit and helping on doing ranch work and stuff. But I've no matter what job I've had over the years, I've always made a few saddles. Come back, I took a job on a ranch south of Buffalo. I think I made four saddles in my dining room slash kitchen, and uh, it slowly picked up. Once I got over the fear of having to provide for my own income, why... It was quite enjoyable, actually. In addition to his work in custom saddles, George also has extensive experience in saddle trees, learning the craft at the end of the 1970s. However, unlike the education in building saddles a decade before, one that was structured, detailed, and taught over several years, learning the craft of saddle trees would prove to be an immensely different experience. The way I got started at it, it was kind of a comedy of errors. I was working on the ranch down there, and I was making a few saddles, and I I had three trees on order for the saddles that I was going to make. A guy by the name of Tenny Hawes was in Midway, Utah, making trees, and that's who I'd been getting all my trees from ever since I'd started. And uh, he sold out before he got my trees made. So the orders went to the new owner, and they really didn't care about my order because I wasn't one of their customers. After multiple phone calls, the first of three trees was finally sent to Buffalo, with less than impressive results. I was shaping the strainer plate for the ground seat, and I was having to shape it funny to make it sit in there right, and I got to looking, and the cattle had either warped or was made crooked, but it was a half inch closer on the on the right-hand side to the swell than it was on the left-hand side, which irritated me, so I called the customer and told him to come and look at this and see what he wanted to do, and 
I said, well, I can either send it back, and God only knows if, they, if they'll fix it or how long it'll be. And he'd already waited long enough. And I said, if we don't do that, I said, I can fix it so that it's rideable. It's going to look a little funny because the candle will be thicker on the one side than, than the other. And he chose to do that. And I still needed these other two trees, and they were for trophy saddles for the annual fair Following a string of continued delays and constant complaints to the company, the remaining trees that eventually arrived were just as warped and cheap as the first. And in a fit of temper, I called Tenny Hawes and asked him what it took to get started making saddle trees. And he said, I'll fix you right up, which he did. And told me what all the machinery I needed and where to get it and all of this stuff. And, and he was going to spend, you know, a couple of weeks with me when I got it all together. And, and got this deal put together. And by the time I got the SBA loan and the equipment here, he'd already started another business, and so he only spent two and a half days with me. He made some patterns for me and showed me how to do it. There was a lot of, lot of learning over the telephone after he went home. With limited time in tree production, Kenny Haas sent out an employee to teach George to rawhide each tree. And he wound up working for me until the middle of the winter. There for about, must have been about five months he worked for me. And one morning I went to work and his, all his stuff was packed up and he was gone. He just left a note saying he might be back and he might not, which he never was. Without someone to rawhide trees, George decided to learn the process himself. And at that point in time, I had never, I'd done some rawhide sewing, but I'd never cut the tree out of the rawhide or, or anything. But I'd spent enough time watching him that I had a pretty good idea, so... And it's a good thing because I started cutting them out and then my wife was sewing them and then I'd go back to working on the, on the woodwork part of it. So it was, yeah, it was a, it was a hard lesson learned, but it's, it's one that they can't take your knowledge away from you when you go broke. You still got that knowledge. The life lessons from building saddle trees would initially lead to a few setbacks. By 1979, the tree shop had closed, shifting from production quality to handmade trees and selling the majority of his equipment. But after absorbing the initial financial blow, coupled with a growing distaste in working for others, George made the move to start full-time in custom saddle making and tree making in 1987. Since walking into the tack shop in the winter of 1969, George Fraker has committed years to the craft of custom saddle making. These decades of experience are reflected in his work, where design and function have developed for over 50 years. Up next, on Hyde and Horn. Well, the bottom of it's got to fit the horse, and that's, that is the most important thing. And the second most important thing is to make it like the rider wants it. But the bottom of that thing is, is, is for the horse and the horse alone, because that's the part that he feels. Before style and design, fit is the ultimate priority when building a saddle. But with the multiple steps required, George's experiences in learning to build trees reflects the limited number of tree makers across the country. Well, it's not a real glamorous job, and, and, and it's a highly technical job. You've got to understand how the tree fits the horse and then how to put it together so that all your angles are right, the tree is straight, and then, of course, the technical part of working with rawhide. It's a, it's a different medium, and every piece of rawhide will react a little differently. I swear, and I've had other people say the same thing, that disposition of the cow shows up the cow that the hide come off of shows up in the hide. Sometimes it'll just fight you. 
from start to finish, and then the next one you pick up will be just easy. Just everything just works and goes smooth. Just as with saddles, quality craftsmanship in a tree comes through the materials used and the design itself. The years spent by George, both in the shop as well as ranching across the West, have all informed the indication of a good quality tree. The quality of the stitching on the rawhide, the quality of the rawhide itself, also how straight is it, how true is it. I've seen them where, where the cantle is actually sitting crooked on the bars. But then you can look at the bars on one, and they're ill-designed. You know, if you, if you if you got the knowledge of, of what it takes to fit a horse's back, and you look at the bottom of them, you you know you can tell that they're not they're either not smooth, or they haven't relieved the, relieved the edges enough, or you know it, it just looks ugly. I guess is probably the simplest way to say it. It was these ugly trees that George got started in building his own trees in the first place. In a story with Jesse Smith at the tax shop, George demonstrates how much a poorly built tree affects the whole saddle-making process. In fact, when I was in Spokane, Jesse had a saddle that he treated he was making a saddle on, and, and he was fitting the seat. The way he showed me how to fit the seat is, is you get your piece of leather pulled down in there and, and fastened in on the cantle, and then you just start trimming on the left side up around the swell and designing that the way you want it laid out. Then you take it off and you cut it. You fold your seat in half and, and trace that outline on the other side and cut that. And he did that. And unbeknownst to him, until he went to put that back in, that that cantle was sitting crooked and it was a half inch farther back on one side and the seat didn't fit the right-hand side like it did the left-hand side. So he had to make a whole new seat and fit both sides individually. In addition to the expertise and investment required for building trees, the process of rawhiding trees is equally arduous. Well, it's not a fun job. It's time intense. And then one of the things I faced here, I was buying hides from ranchers. So I was at the mercy of whatever they bought. And I about had to take it, otherwise they'd quit bringing me. So sometimes I'd get something that I couldn't use on a saddle tree. But I had to pay for it anyway, just so I'd keep them coming and bringing the, the good stuff. And then, of course, you you know you got to dehair and you got to flesh and you got to bring it back to a neutral pH and all of that takes time. It was a good experience, and I'm glad I did it, but I'm glad I'm not doing it now. And just as in any other industry, new technology and forms of production have also brought new types and methods to building saddle trees. But while new materials such as fiberglass and flex trees have been introduced to the market, George continues in the long legacy of rawhide. Yes, I am a dyed-in-the-wool traditionalist. Like I said, I don't need see any need to try and reinvent the wheel and come up with something new and different because this has been working for over 100 years, well over 100 years. It's not perfect, but it's, it's the best that I've seen. Legacy also comes through in George's stamping and carving. With years spent living and working across various parts of the country, multiple areas of inspiration have all contributed to the creation of his own unique style. To start with, it was kind of the Northwest floral design, basically what Jesse was doing. Ray Holes in Grangeville, Idaho. His work was that Northwest style pattern. So that's what I gravitated to to begin with, and then moved back down here and got exposed to the quote-unquote Sheridan style of tooling and the floral design. Liked it. 
So if I, I've incorporated that into my style. So my, my style is kind of a hybrid of the two, leanings very heavily towards the Sheridan style. Well, it's just like all of the guys in Sheridan that are still tooling their work just continues to evolve. It's either gets more intricate or they're putting in different elements and stuff and pushing themselves. I'd like to think my work is the same way. It's still in a, in a state of evolution. While individual saddle makers have all left a mark, Hamley Company also has greatly influenced George's work. As far as the style of construction of the saddle and the lines and the layout of the lines and the look of the finished saddle when you just stand back and look at it, probably now Hamley and Company is probably the most influential on what I like a saddle to look like when I'm done as far as the, the way the lines are and stuff. It's not a carbon copy of a Hamley saddle, but it does show a lot of Hamley influence because I just like the looks of their old saddles. Their old ranch saddles was just awesome. They had a classy look to them, and I tried to emulate that as much as I can, and still yet it'd be, it'd be my own style. The development of one's unique style never stops either. As George explains, the desire to continue to evolve and change reflects an innate desire to do so. It comes from the, the fact that you're an individual, you're basically developing your own style that is will become recognizable to people that are around it and make it so that it's not just a cookie-cutter copy of somebody else's work, that it's actually your individual look and work to a saddle. George highlights this philosophy of individuality. One of my customers over in Gillette, him and his family, they've got six of my saddles now. And I made a saddle for my grandson here a few years ago. And he'd gone over to Gillette to a roping. And this guy was there. He walked up to my grandson and he said, oh, that's got to be a Fraker saddle by the looks of it. And he said, yeah. <laughs> so it's, they've, they've got a look of their own, I guess. Kind of like a lot of the Hamley saddles did. You could look at a Hamley saddle on a horse a quarter of a mile away and tell whether it was a Hamley or, you know, they, they, they just had a classy look. And that's what I try to get is something that looks classy, even though it may not be all flowered up and covered with silver. It's still got a class look to it. Clientele also plays a part in the overall design of the saddle. That extends beyond function and design to include other practical needs. For me especially, I still design my saddles with the, with the idea that it's got to be repaired at some time or another. And so I try to make them as repair friendly as I can in the design and, and the way they're put together. Because it costs the repairman time and it costs the owner that's paying for the repairs, it costs him extra money if it takes extra long to, to do one little job that shouldn't take that long if it was designed a little different. In building saddles too, a large portion of the building process involves discussions with the client on what might work best. The way George convinces clientele reflects decades of countless conversations on everything from the detriments of padded seats. It's the first thing that's going to wear out on your saddle, and it's the most expensive thing to replace. And it's not comfortable if you don't replace it. Tell a lot of them that, and they back off right away. To the lack of longevity in skirt riggings. It's not going to last as long because it's too close to the horse, and you're around your rivets and stuff. They'll start sweat rotting out, sweat through the pad, and then that's right there as you're rigging. And when you when that goes to pieces, then you got to put the whole skirt on. You know, build whole new skirts. But in the mantra of the customer is always right. Like old Jack Lewis that owned the tax shop said, "If they want the horn on the candle, we'll put it there." By God. <laughs> Rather than simply state, George will oftentimes let clients try out his recommendations, 
letting the saddle do the majority of the convincing. In one instance, George recalls offering to build a saddle with flat plate rigging. Well, he was from Oklahoma, so he wanted a double D ring, and I told him I'd, I'd like to have him try it. I said, if, if you'll let me put it in there to begin with, and you don't like it, I'll take it out and put a double D ring in and not charge you for it. So he, he went for it, and he never would admit that he liked the flat plate, but he didn't bring it back to have me put it, change it either. Up next, views on a changing industry, here on Heidenhorn. Like I said, over the years to make a living, I've done a lot of things, and, and all of it was a good education. And it's all priceless stuff that I learned, you know. I like working with my hands. I like creating stuff, and uh, I don't foresee it changing. Starting from the first saddle in 1969, George continues to develop in custom saddle making and tree making. And as his style and design in his saddles has changed over time, so too has a larger ranching industry. I think that's the biggest thing. There's getting less and less people that, that are making their living in a saddle and a lot more weekend riders. And rather than ride a bicycle, they have a horse in the backyard and they go trail riding it, you know, when they have free moment. With an aforementioned dedication to keeping to what has already worked in the past, change is sometimes met with scrutiny. This is especially true with promises of perfection. There's articles all the time and somebody's preaching the perfect fit of a saddle on a horse. And when somebody says that to me, I say, just what 10-minute period in that horse's life do you want that perfect fit? Because his back is under a constant state of change from the time he's born until the day he dies. That can vary from first thing in the morning when you saddle him up and say you're going to ride to the mountain and gather cows on him all day. That saddle don't fit the same at night when you take it off as it did that morning. Because, you know, through exercise, their back shrinks and changes position or, you know, their body shrinks because they're losing water and so this emphasis on this perfect fit is a waste of time. What you want is a good common fit that will fit with changing of pads, cause the least amount of problem, but come as close to a perfect fit as you can get. Additionally, with the rising popularity of saddle making across the country, access to educational information is available through a multitude of mediums. But while materials such as videos play a part in improving as a saddle maker, compared to in-person instruction, crucial aspects are lost. You can't beat the the first person hands-on. That's the thing that you don't get out of a video. Videos are a good instructional tool. You can improve yourself by watching what somebody else does. You may pick up a different way of doing it that's easier for you or, or something. But to learn straight from a video, it you're getting half of it, maybe. And you, you get no, uh, why do I do that? And then a lot of times the video, the camera's in the wrong position and you can't really see what's happening until it's over. Where a one-on-one instruction and then, then you're doing it too. You know, you got your hands on it. Such materials equally often show only the building process, where vital areas of explanation and assistance are not included, leading to a limited ability to truly improve in the craft. Well, you don't get any critique from a video. It's just, it tells you what to do, and then you go do it, and if you screw up, you don't realize why. You don't know how come. Why did it do this, you know? 
I tried to follow the video and it, it looks like this. Why? Well, if you've got your one on one instructor there with you, they can say, well, this is the reason why. And this is what you got to do to correct it. You know, everything looks pretty good, but this would have made it better and it wouldn't have done what it did. Or, you know, I can show somebody a whole lot easier than I can explain to them. Far beyond learning to build saddles, to be a saddle maker requires a sincere dedication to the craft. As George explains, this dedication comes through in everything from innate ability to creative diets during starving years. It helps if you're out of your mind to start with. But you've got to have a desire, and it does help tremendously if you've got a certain amount of natural ability that you can build on. I mean, there's some people that just, their hands don't work right. Not everybody can do it. It's like not everybody can become a professional portrait artist or something, you know. You've got to have a an inborn natural ability to do it to start with, to be good at it. And then you've got to have an extreme desire to want to. You've got to learn to live on beanie weenies and Vienna sausage and stuff. <laughs> this passion to continue in the craft comes through in each saddle built, especially in contrast to their factory counterpart, where each piece of the saddle is assembled separately, a custom saddle reflects the maker themselves. They're not putting any part of themselves in that saddle. You know, any good saddle maker, every saddle that he turns out, there's a part of his heart and mind in that saddle when it leaves the door. I mean, it's something you care about. You're doing the best that you can do at that point in time when it goes out the door. And you've got a pride in it, pride in your workmanship. And like I said, you put a lot of your own yourself into it if you care about it. And if you don't, you're just slapping them together and out the door they go. For George, creating the best saddle possible not only reflects a personal commitment to the craft. By maintaining a high quality of craftsmanship, George continues in the work of his predecessors. I think it's just in carrying on a tradition that has been started for years and, and not doing damage to it. You know, when you start cheapening something up, you're not doing the guys that came before you any favors by lessening what you're doing from what they did. If anything, you want to try and improve on what they were doing if you can. The importance is to do the best job that you can possibly do on everything. You you always strive for that perfection that's off in the distance. If you ever quit just striving for that, you're wasting your time. You'd better go do something else because you've lost that desire to improve. And when asked on reaching perfection? I hope not, but I want to try. There's only one perfect thing in this world, and, and I've never met him. You have been listening to Hide and Horn. This story was written and produced by Ian Halligan. Our main theme is by Luke Bell, and additional music was provided by Danny Huggins. This program is made possible in partnership with Culture Conservation Corps and with the support of a grant from the Wyoming Cultural Trust Fund, a program of the Department of State Parks and Cultural Resources. This program is also supported in part by a grant from Think Why Wyoming Humanities. Yes, I am.